So I think Anne and I were thinking of doing a couple of things. Um, I'm going to start by trying to contextualize what's going on in Haiti, talk a little bit about Haiti's uh, history and background. Uh, it doesn't often get discussed in the press except when uh, it's going through a crisis or disaster. Um, so there's a lot to know about Haiti. Um, one of the things I'd like us to be able to accomplish tonight in general is for each of you to know more about Haiti uh, than uh, your peers might. And if you, then you can critically read the newspaper and critically watch the coverage. There's often a lot of things said about Haiti as a country that uh, aren't always true or might be uh, uh, based on sort of myth or prejudice, all kinds of things that you can hopefully start to critique and think about when you uh, watch the news and the coverage of this event as it unfolds. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about why uh, this earthquake is so devastating in Haiti. Um, I mean, a, a, an earthquake of 7.0 magnitude would be devastating anywhere, but it's become especially devastating because of the kind of place that it hit and the kind of conditions that were there before the quake. So I'll say a little bit about that. And then at some point, Anne and I are going to show you a very short video um, that'll tell you a little bit about a group called Partners in Health, which is one of many groups on the ground uh, working very hard to respond to this crisis. And, um, and Anne will say a little bit more about Partners in Health and what they do. And then uh, we can do a couple of things at the end, uh, some, some questions and answers, have a conversation. Um, but I'd like that to focus in particular on how to think ahead uh, going from this event. What can we all do right now in the short term? What can we do in the medium term? What can we do in the long term? What is the challenges and possibilities of the relief effort now? And what are the possibilities for rebuilding and setting the stage for what I would call a durable future in Haiti. Um, so we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, let me just say a few things to put the earthquake in context. In uh, the realm of what's called disaster studies, there is such a field. Uh, there's a field that studies everything, and disaster's uh, part of that. Um, we tend to make a distinction, and I think it's an important distinction to make, between natural hazards, something like an earthquake or a hurricane, and uh, social disasters. Uh, because natural hazards in and of themselves can have all kinds of consequences, some very minor, some very extensive. And it's a particular articulation or, or nexus of a natural, a natural hazard with social conditions that makes what we would normally call in everyday speech a disaster. Uh, now, as I said a moment ago, the earthquake that hit Port-au-Prince in the surrounding area was a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. It's actually a very powerful earthquake, and it would have done damage just about anywhere that it hit. It was also an incredibly shallow earthquake, which means it's very close to the surface of the ground, which means more surface damage uh, than it would be if it was very, very deep under the ground. Um, it hit a city. Um, and a surrounding area with about three million people living in it, a very densely uh, populated urban area. But the most important thing to realize about um, why this is becoming such a catastrophe in Haiti is that what's going on right now is really the amalgam of a natural hazard plus extreme, I would even say radical vulnerability. Uh, the social context in Haiti is mired by extreme uh, deep poverty, by um, completely unplanned, uh, unregulated city on uh, mountain slopes 
uh, shoddy construction, uh, no building code, uh, very little infrastructure. All these things have combined to make uh, this particular catastrophe as extreme as it's been. And uh, you may have seen this in the news already, but one of the things that's also making it uh, uh, extra difficult to deal with in terms of relief and response is that because it hit the capital city and because of the role that Port-au-Prince plays in Haiti as a capital city, it has hit um, the seat of government. It's taken out just about every government building is completely gone in Haiti, along with a good chunk of, or at least some of the government. It's uh, taken out the police stations. Uh, half the police force is dead or severely injured. It's taken out the port, which significantly uh, hampers the ability to get aid in. It's damaged the airport, although that's functional. Uh, it's damaged roads, completely taken out the communication infrastructure, uh, what little was there. It's taken out to the power structure, so there's very little electricity for hospitals. It's taken out most of the hospitals and the schools and any other large structure that could turn into a proxy hospital, like a hotel. Um, all of these have been um, totally or near totally destroyed. It's also significantly damaged the UN uh, headquarters, which was based in the capital. And most aid organizations and NGOs have their, their headquarters in the capital as well. So it's taken out the command structure and the administrative apparatus that would normally respond, which has added uh, enormous complications to dealing with this catastrophe. Um, but let me back up and tell you a little bit about the story of Haiti um, to contextualize uh, why Port-au-Prince was as chaotic and unplanned as it was, and why there was a UN mission in Haiti already. It's been there since 2004. Um, you may or may not have known that already. And, uh, and why Haiti is so extremely vulnerable as a population. Some of this, if you are familiar with Haiti and its history, might be repetitive, so I apologize for that. But I want to give a really quick overview of some of the key historical periods or moments in Haitian history. And um, this is something that, that people who work in Haiti often do, certainly something that Haitians do. Uh, it might not make sense um, if you're not looking at it from that perspective, but when people talk about Haitian history, they tend to go back um, two, three, four, five hundred years uh, to try and explain the present, uh, which is not something we ne necessarily do uh, everywhere else. I'm not going to go back 500 years except just to briefly say an interesting fact about um, where Haiti is, which is that it's the first place that Columbus uh, landed and crashed into, really. Um, one of his ships ran aground on the north coast of Haiti, and he left the first settlement uh, in the New World, went back to get another ship. Um, so it's, it's got uh, this historical um, position at the start of European colonization in the New World, something that, that has set up an important dynamic uh, between, uh, or characterized the relationship between Haiti and uh, much of the rest of the world. But the much more important history to understand the present is to think about um, the colony of Saint-Domingue, which is what Haiti was before it became Haiti. It was a French colony on the western third of the island of Española. The other side was a Spanish colony. And under the French, Haiti became, in the 18th century, the wealthiest colony in the New World and rivaling many other um, colonies around the world. It was producing enormous quantities of coffee and sugar uh, for Europe. And um, it's not uh, just figurative to say consuming large quantities of African slaves in the African slave trade. The lifespan of slaves in the colony of Saint-Domingue was something on the order of seven or eight years uh, working in the sugar plantations. That's how uh, rapacious the, the labor practices were. So Haiti was uh, called the Pearl of the Antilles, and France deemed it important enough um, that 
uh, during the Haitian Revolution, which I'll come to in a, just a second, uh, they sold off the Louisiana territories to the U.S. government to fund the military mission to keep this small little uh, territory in the Caribbean. Um, so to go from the wealthiest colony in the New World to what Haiti has persistently been called, it's accurate, but it's become sort of like a surname for the country, to become the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere uh, has taken uh, a particular kind of history. Now, that begins with the Haitian Revolution, uh, which begins in 1791. Um, it's, and it, it ends in 1804 with the Declaration of Haitian Independence. It's a, it's a revolution um, uh, completely organized and run by the slaves on the plantations. It's the only successful modern uh, slave revolution. And it uh, significantly changed the uh, society, economy, and politics of the Caribbean and the Circum-Caribbean region. Uh, people were very concerned that, that the revolution might spread. Slavery was an important institution throughout the Caribbean and throughout much of uh, America as well. The Haitian Revolution ended in 1804 after defeating uh, Napoleon's army. Napoleon sent something on the order of 30 to 40,000 troops to fight the slaves, including his brother-in-law, um, General Charles Leclerc, who died uh, along with many of the French against the slaves. It's a really significant military battle, a really significant moment in history that is never really reported in history anymore. The Haitian Revolution follows in a line of the American and French revolutions in what many historians call the age of revolution, um, but it's seldom noted. It's, it's in fact, uh, there's a book by a British historian named Eric Hobsbawm called The Age of Revolutions, and Haiti is a footnote in it. Uh, he looks at the American and French revolutions. And it's an interesting question to think about why that might be, what, especially when both the French and American revolutions, which were so concerned to highlight the rights of man and citizen, the rights of uh, these, these things we hold as foundational um, to the emergence of modern republics and modern democracies, Haiti was the only one that got rid of slavery out of those revolutions. The American and the French societies kept slavery. Well, France uh, flirted with getting rid of it and then reinstated it under Napoleon. And so Haiti actually is uh, of incredible historical importance for the making of the modern world, but it's a story that we seldom hear. Um, from the revolution throughout the 19th century, Haiti was uh, isolated uh, in many ways by France, by the US, uh, by the rest of the Caribbean, which were all colonies under the control of various European countries. Uh, France uh, refused to recognize Haiti as, political, as a politically independent country until the 1820s and 30s when the Haitian government negotiated uh, what was called an indemnity um, to pay to France for property lost during the revolution, uh, which uh, included the cost of the, uh, the, slave, uh, the plantations lost, the property lost, as well as the slaves on them. Um, when a slave becomes a free person, uh, you lose property if you're a slave owner. Right? So they had to literally pay for their freedom and they literally had to pay to become people. Uh, at least as recognized by the uh, regional politics of the time. The U.S. didn't recognize Haiti officially until 1862, so an enormous amount of time before anyone would really set up official trade uh, relationships or official political relationships with the country, which severely hampered its ability to, um, to develop. And the internal uh, version of that story, as Haiti uh, was taking shape in the 19th century, is slightly different but an important dynamic as well. Um, the ex-slaves, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, were not very interested in going back to work on large-scale plantations. So they fled from the former plantations to the countryside, 
Haiti is an incredibly mountainous country, so it's very conducive to this kind of thing. You can sort of disappear into the countryside very easily. And within about a generation after the Declaration of Independence, we had the emergence in Haiti of a peasantry. Very interesting phenomenon uh, to see a peasantry, something they usually associate in Europe with sort of tradition and the past, emerging in the modern era uh, in the New World out of the slave plantation system. The peasantry uh, sought land ownership primarily. Uh, that was the thing they were most concerned in. They squatted on, bought, rented, anything they could do to get land, small-scale land, and became cultivators. And for this reason, land has a, a high, highly charged symbolic value associated with freedom. Um, if you imagine uh, this first generation going from being owned, being property, being a slave, to owning land and owning the ability to produce your own food and produce the commodity you can sell, you can maybe imagine why land is so incredibly important. But part of that dynamic that is that the state that emerged in the 19th century um, couldn't really imagine doing anything except plantations or letting the peasants do their own thing. So the state tried to get them to work for wages on plantations. It didn't work, so they gave up. And the Haitian state, as it developed, basically took on a highly predatory role. It, the political and, and economic elite um, retreated to urban areas and became merchants, um, speculators. They moved the commodities that the peasantry was growing, like food for the internal market and coffee, which there was some ability to still trade coffee out of Haiti. Uh, and the state basically made most of its revenue from taxes on the peasantry. Uh, so there's a particular kind of uh, uh, tense relationship between the government and its people throughout the 19th century. In the 20th century, uh, the Caribbean as a whole, much of, of Central and Latin America as well, were uh, drawn into the orbit of the United States through a whole host of policies, uh, most of them uh, economic and military. The US in the first few decades of the 20th century sent military interventions and occupations to uh, a whole host of countries throughout the region. Haiti is one of them. In 1915, the US uh, invaded Haiti and, and stayed around as a military and then civilian government running the country for almost 20 years until 1934. Um, part of that was to displace German and French interests from the Caribbean region as part of the Monroe Doctrine uh, and the, the idea that the Caribbean was the backyard of the United States. They wanted to make sure that no European powers had any significant role to play in the region. So this particular moment, the start of the 20th century and the, and the century that follows from 1915 to the present is important to realize that the United States uh, consciously and willingly drew the whole region into its sphere of influence, Haiti among uh, other countries. And for that reason alone, I think it's not um, unfair to say that the US should play a primary role and the US has some political responsibility in responding to issues in Haiti. It's helped uh, create some of the, the dynamics that we see in the past century uh, that have unfolded in Haiti. A couple other high points of the 20th century. Uh, um, most of the governments of the 20th century were authoritarian regimes or undemocratic. Uh, some of them were unconstitutional, not elected. They seized power. Uh, some of them were dictatorships, a whole history of these various kinds of political formations, none of which sought to really build uh, social or economic institutions in the country, um, some of which, uh, like the Duvalier dictatorship from 1957 to 1986, were uh, directly supported by the United States and many other countries uh, because they uh, um, 
rounded up and arrested communists. This was in the era after the Cuban Revolution. And so Haiti served primarily as a strategic interest in the region to block the development of communism and potential other leftist movements. Um, from 1986 onward, the most recent period of Haitian history, this is the period that's usually called the uh, democratic transition, although it's gone on uh, much longer than people imagined when it started. Uh, in Haiti, they call it the endless transition. It's not really going anywhere. Um, but what happens is in, in 1986, you get a popular movement, an uprising against the Duvalier family dictatorship that literally takes to the streets and topples the government. Uh, and then from there, you have a whole host of um, policies and projects to build a democratic society and a democratic government in Haiti. It's taken a long time to even get minimal uh, democratic institutions politically, like uh, free and fair regular elections. The Haitian military often stepped in. There's been several coups that have displaced elected presidents. And all of this has enormously um, blocked the ability for any significant development or anti-poverty campaigns in Haiti. Alongside all of this story of uh, this political instability, political problems, has been uh, another one, which is that the peasantry, uh, the vast majority of the population, has seen uh, the agricultural sector, which they're involved in, decline uh, significantly uh, through um, population pressure, degraded land, massive deforestation. The country's about 98, 99% deforested, massive soil erosion. So the peasantry has become... Uh, uh, is unable to support itself. And by and large, most peasant families are now supported by uh, remittances sent back by uh, members of their family who work as migrant labor in the US or in Guadeloupe or the Dominican Republic or uh, elsewhere. There's about a billion dollars a year sent back as remittances directly to families in Haiti to keep the illusion that there is some sort of peasantry still living in the countryside. Uh, the state has been unable to um, uh, do what it normally did, which is extract revenue through surplus, uh, through taxation from the peasantry. So the state's revenues decline. The state's become incredibly aid dependent uh, for that reason as well. And there's been development projects in Haiti for well over 60 years um, of various kinds from the United States through programs like uh, USAID, uh, through the UN, through um, a whole host of grassroots aid organizations and non-governmental organizations. And all of these have, if we, if we really take seriously and evaluate um, the success of the development projects in Haiti, uh, which has had basically every variant of development policy you can imagine. Um, we're left with just another kind of staggering uh, image or staggering statistic, which is that Haiti remains the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere despite billions and billions of aid dollars going into the country, despite billions of projects going into the country, despite the fact that Haiti has by far the largest number of non-governmental organizations in the country than any other country in the world. Now, Haiti is an incredibly small place, and there's something on the order of 10,000 non-governmental organizations working in Haiti, uh, at least. I mean, they're not registered. And so we do have to question, what does this mean, and how has this somehow failed to produce um, a stable, democratic, developing country? Uh, that's, a, that's a much bigger question to kind of answer, but I think some of these uh, historical factors point to uh, at least, at the very least, the need to rethink how we do development in Haiti. My suggestion of, of why these have failed would be that it's sort of a very nutshell version of this, and you can find a longer um, 
discussion of this on the Center for International Studies website, which uh, has a long article on Haiti with an interview with me and a number of other people, as well as a short piece that I wrote that flushes out more of this historical background. So if you go to um, the CIS website uh, and then follow the links to the program on global environment, you'll see a lot of links as well to news stories about the earthquake, a lot of good information you can find there. But one of the things I think that has contributed most to the, the continuing uh, persistent poverty of Haiti has been the fact that the development project, especially of, of NGOs, has sought very, very small scale projects with no organizational frame and no comprehensive plan. And on the flip side of that, international uh, groups, the international community has sought short term interventions to deal with particular emergencies or crises, uh, like uh, rebuilding after a hurricane, for example, or intervening with a military mission after a political coup. Um, none of these have ever imagined a national comprehensive development plan in the country. And the state hasn't ever done that as either. And I mean, it should be the institution that, that plans that kind of thing. It hasn't done it um, before the democratic movement, before the 80s, because it wasn't the kind of state that thought it should develop the country. It was a predatory state feeding off the people. But now that we've had this, this long, problematic, um, but important democratic transition, we do have the possibility of the Haitian state taking on this role. Now the problem is the state has been notoriously weak and has lacked what we call, uh, has lacked the capacity, the institutional capacity to do much, if anything. Uh, it's again, aid dependent. It doesn't have much in the way of funding. It doesn't have um, the institutional basis to even run basic services in Port-au-Prince, let alone the countryside. And the state's weakness has actually been um, exacerbated by the development approach, by the fact that NGOs and the international community seek continuously to bypass the state in how they deliver aid, uh, which means the state never takes on the institutional role of managing aid and, and um, building uh, hospitals, building schools that are administered by the state. And the state takes on the role for helping shape the policy and shaping service provision. So I think that what I would say, at least, of, of what um, has been one of the, the uh, most problematic issues in Haiti has been the, the weak state, the lack of capacity on the part of the state to govern, to provide needed and, um, services. And I think that um, while it's absolutely devastating uh, that the capital city and the state um, institutions have been destroyed by the earthquake, we at least now see um, the direct need to have a bold, ambitious, comprehensive plan to rebuild the state and to rebuild social institutions on a national scale. Uh, if nothing else, um, this catastrophe shows exactly how much that project is needed in Haiti. Um, so I think I'll end there. That's a lot of uh, rather depressing background story to an absolutely depressing situation that's happening in Haiti right now. But um, maybe we'll switch to the video and then we can come back and talk about um, what kinds of concrete things might be done, what kinds of concrete things have been done that might provide models for actual solutions to the problems we see in Haiti, which uh, I should mention right now, I actually think, um, again, despite the uh, enormous catastrophe of the earthquake in Haiti right now, I think we are at a moment of great potential for actually uh, forcing the world to pay attention long enough to help rebuild Haiti in a meaningful way. Um, so is it this thing? Yeah. 
So this is a, a eight or nine minute segment from 60 minutes, sorry, 12. maybe 12 minutes, uh, whatever the fraction of the, the watch and the <laughs> Uh, before the commercial breaks is. It's a, it's a bit from 60 Minutes where they uh, interview some um, people from this group, Partners in Health, which we'll tell you a little bit more about afterwards. But it'll also show you a little bit about Haiti. Uh, Partners in Health is, Health is mainly based outside of Port-au-Prince. Um, so you'll see some, um, some of that as well in the video. Tonight, CBS News correspondent Byron Pitts on assignment for 60 Minutes. The great innovators of our time are said to be the titans of technology, the inventors of the microchip, the founders of Microsoft, the guys behind Google. But far from Silicon Valley, another great thinker and innovator is changing the world with far less fanfare. He's Dr. Paul Farmer. More than 20 years ago, he and a few other great minds created a charity called Partners in Health. In the years since, they've revolutionized the delivery of healthcare worldwide saving millions of lives in places where no one thought there was any reason for hope. The idea that because you're born in Haiti, you could die having a child. The idea that because you're born in, you know, Malawi, your children may go to bed hungry. We want to take some of the chance out of that. Dr. Farmer invited us to central Haiti, where he discovered his life's work 25 years ago. That meant a three-hour, jaw-clenching, teeth-rattling ride on an unpaved road from the capital city to the hospital. Why do they call this a highway? You got me. You got me, buddy. It's the principal artery through Central Haiti. If the ride doesn't break your back, what you see when you arrive will break your heart. The squatter settlement of Kanj is one of the poorest parts of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Bonjour, the desperate need Paul Farmer saw here as a young man inspired him and four friends to create Partners in Health. They raised money and built what's become the largest hospital in central Haiti. How many lives do you think Partners in Health have saved? In medicine, we say TNTC, too numerous to count, too numerous to count. What began as a small, understaffed, ill-equipped clinic in 1985, today has 100 inpatient beds, an array of specialists, and three operating rooms. They have nearly two million patient visits a year. And the medical care here is free. For Paul Farmer, health care is a human right. He wants to show the world that children, for example, don't have to die of treatable illnesses like tuberculosis or malaria. Maybe they treat those diseases every day. Do you have any idea how many people around the world die from treatable diseases? Well, uh, probably about 10 million a year. Because if you look at from treatable diseases. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Things that if they were in the well, U.S. Let me just give you some, some numbers. Just from AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, and women who die in childbirth, I bet that's 6 million. Haitians are so desperate for medical care that each night people sleep on the ground outside the hospital just waiting to get treated. We were there when Dr. Farmer got word that a woman dying in childbirth was being prepared for an emergency C-section. So this is a 45-year-old woman who has 11 children who's hemorrhaging right now and has placenta previa, which is what some people call a third trimester catastrophe. So she's really sick. Doctor? The surgical team was made up entirely of Haitians. Partners in Health staffs its hospitals with as many locals as possible, so they're not dependent on Americans. 
In this case, the baby was delivered alive. For the mother who'd lost a lot of blood, it was touch and go. Dr. Farmer checked on her after the operation. She's going to make it. Thumbs up. That same woman, same circumstances 25 years ago, what would have happened? Well, she wouldn't have made it. What does that tell you about your work? It tells me that if you set your sights high and if you stick with it, you can make real progress. That's what it says to me. In fact, Paul Farmer has made astounding progress. Partners in Health has expanded and now works in nine countries, including Peru, Russia, Mexico, and three countries in Africa. With 6,000 employees worldwide, their budget of $50 million is barely enough to keep it going. Dr. Farmer spends most of his time commuting between the hospitals in Rwanda and Haiti. <laughs> One of his priorities, train a new generation of doctors to follow in his footsteps, physicians like David Walton. I look at you, 31 years old, medical degree from Harvard, can make a gazillion dollars back in the States, and you're in Haiti. What do you get out of it? There's nothing that I'd rather be doing with my life. Absolutely nothing. And it's a hard life. Seven-day work weeks, including house calls. And a house call in Haiti can mean a hike up the side of a mountain. You walk for 30 minutes, walk for an hour, walk for four hours. The patients do it every day. Why shouldn't I do it? On this day, Dr. Walton was visiting 10-year-old Claden, suffering from a damaged heart valve. Her family and neighbors showed up with their list of ailments. There are no short lines in Haiti. Some of Claden's siblings were also sick from sleeping on a muddy floor, including the parents. Twelve people sleep in this one room. You know, in the scheme of poverty in rural Haiti, this is pretty bad. You know, we're on the, the lower end of the spectrum. Ten kids living in a place like this with no material possessions and a very, very sick child. Even for the well-trained, this is difficult. I can't imagine, sorry, I can't imagine turning my back on something like this. I mean, some people can, but I can't, and I won't, and I, you know, this is my life's work. There was no happy ending for this story. Claden died not long after Dr. Walton's house call. There are always whispers about programs like this mm -hmm. that they can't outlive the people that found the place, that when the Paul Farmers move on, PIH will be done. Paul, part of his genius is that he has set up a system that doesn't depend on his presence or absence. Haiti's run by Haitian physicians. In Rwanda, the Rwandan hospitals should be run by Rwandan physicians. And so when Paul, the Paul Farmers of the world aren't around anymore, this place will still be here providing great care. You know that or just hope that? I know it. I know it. But there's no question Paul Farmer has been a driving force. Take AIDS, for example. In the late 1990s, the disease was ravaging the people of Haiti. Conventional medical wisdom was there's no point in giving AIDS drugs to the poor in third world countries. But Dr. Farmer wouldn't give up on his patients. He raised money and gave them drugs anyway. And look what happened. This is Joseph. And this is Joseph just six months after starting treatment. And here he is today, five years later, and feeling fine. And the same kind of transformation happened in patient after patient. When Paul started treating people in 1998 in Haiti, everyone said he was absolutely nuts, impossible, can't be done, and forget about it. 
Dr. Jim Kim is a professor at Harvard Medical School and one of the co-founders of Partners in Health. And here we are, you know, not even a decade later, where the goal is to treat every single human on the planet who needs HIV treatment with the right drugs. And look at this man stricken with tuberculosis. They saved his life and thousands like him. Farmer and Kim figured out not just a new way to treat multi-drug resistant TB, but a cheaper way to provide the medicine. Their breakthrough has become the new standard to save the lives of people around the world. You were able to, to lower drug prices. How is that possible? I realized very quickly, but these are all old generic drugs. There's no reason for them to be so expensive. So we did some very simple things. We talked to uh, drug procurement specialists who had contacts in India who said, we can make these drugs for one hundredth of the price. But drugs only work if people take them. So Partners in Health came up with the idea of hiring community health workers, fellow villagers. They visit the sick at home every day, making sure they take their medicine. The result, says Farmer, is that their patients with AIDS and TB stay healthier longer than many patients in the U.S. Yes, there are people here in central Haiti who get better care for certain diseases than they would, you know, in parts of the United States. Come on. No, I'm absolutely serious. I've seen it. Just wanted to remind you of our visit and that I'm on my way, okay? A program so successful Partners in Health has exported the model of using community health workers to American communities, like Roxbury, Massachusetts. You've been an inspiration to so many people. Thank you. Paul Farmer's success has made him a celebrity in the world of global health care. He won a MacArthur Genius Award, heady stuff for a man from humble means. His mother was a grocery store cashier, his father a school teacher, who chose an unconventional lifestyle for his family. You grew up on a bus? It was actually a bus that had been used to take x-rays in a tuberculosis screening program. See, you see, this is why I don't like talking about my biography, because that sounds so neat, right? I lived in a bus. Neat? I, I, that seems I, pretty hardcore to me, well, grew up on go. a bus. No, but I mean it was a tuberculosis bus, and then later I became a tuberculosis expert. He came from a family of eight, and he said even though it was crowded on that bus in Florida, he didn't feel deprived, but rather adventurous. Yeah. You, you ate your meals on the bus? We did, until we moved on to the boat. Live on a bus for a while, then on a boat? Yes, with a tent in between. How did that kind of upbringing shape who you are now, you think? Well, you know, when you grow up in those conditions, surrounded by affection, and um, but not having a lot of things, because you can't put a lot of things for eight people in 28 feet of space, then you get pretty resilient. He went from the bus to a scholarship at Duke University and then to Harvard Medical School where he's on the faculty. He married a Haitian woman and they have three children. Though he travels the world, Paul Farmer insists Haiti is home. His services are free, but he still accepts gifts like the occasional rooster. Give me the laundry list, the kinds of gifts you've gotten over Well, yesterday, I got two roosters. I got a, probably about a dozen and a half eggs. I got some milk. You got enough there for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, I do. Before we left Haiti, Dr. Farmer insisted we meet one last patient. This is Gillette Sano, 35-year-old cancer survivor. The chemotherapy worked. Her leukemia is in remission. It's awfully good news for her. 
Good. So she looks uh, a million times better. When do you... And this was the one place the normally in control, even-keeled Paul Farmer revealed. Sometimes his work does get to him. It happened when he read Jolette's thank you letter. I, I want to take this time to show my gratitude to you. If, as for me, if... I'll read it to you later. This is hard for you sometimes. You know, it's a lot. I mean, everybody should have access to, you know, medical care. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't be such a big deal. For the sick, the poor, the forgotten in Haiti, Paul Farmer is a big deal. There's a Haitian expression some of his patients use when he's away. We miss him, they say, like dry earth misses the rain. And it was aired in May of 2008, before the four hurricanes hit in September of 2008, and obviously before the crisis of what we're experiencing now. Um, and my relationship to Partners in Health is that I was a college student with Paul Farmer, and I've maintained a relationship with him and his organization. Really, I don't see Paul very much, but I, I work as a volunteer with the organization over the last three years intensively, and I've been supporting the organization since, since I learned after I lost track of him after we graduated in 1982 that he, he won this MacArthur Genius Award in 1993, and we reconnected, and, um, and I really just completely got absorbed by the organization and the work that he did, and I, I don't really have to talk that much more about that. The road that he was in the vehicle with taking the interviewer, um, that is now paved, but that is recent, and that's probably within the last year. And it actually, I made my first trip to Haiti a year ago, and they were just finishing up getting to part of the Central Plateau region, which is where Partners in Health works. Um, at, at, at dinner with Larry and Kathy and, and Greg, we, we talked a little bit about what, what we wanted to communicate to you tonight. And um, I think it, it's hard to watch all of this. It's hard to see all of this happening. It, it's really difficult for, for me at this point. It's getting harder, actually, as, as the week progresses. Um, the shock of it, the initial shock is over. And now it, it's, it's daunting. What do we, what do, we do? What, what can you, as students of, you know, a, a, higher learning institution do to make a difference in this world. And you, you can see, I mean, just, just looking at where Paul Farmer came from, you, you don't have to have anything to, to, to do great things in this world, as you know. Um, and just with, your, with yourselves, I think over the long haul, I'd like you to just think about who you, who you connect with here and how you go through your lives together and support each other in your, in your endeavors, because you're all gonna do great things. Um, uh, on, on the Haitian level, I think there's, there's numerous things. You might say, like, I, I don't, right now, immediately, what they need is, is money. And you, you probably don't have that to offer. But there's things that you can do to help raise awareness, which is huge, raise, raise money um, that may not be your money. But I, I have a freshman at, at Rhode Island School of Design right now. And 
he's he's a singer. He's he's gonna or, he organized all the Brown a cappella groups because RISD's across the street from Brown University. Jim Kim, who was also in this, um, he was a graduate of Brown, and they're huge supporters of Partners in Health. But you know, whoever you decide to to help, you know, they're gonna do a. a concert. They're going to, last night the RAs raised $1,000 for Doctors Without Borders. They, they did a Creole dinner and every, every student brought $5. You know, I mean, there's, there's ways to do it. Northwestern is, is doing something right now with a group called Globe Med. Um, Partners in Health has a website. You can, it's called Stand with Haiti. You can, you can start your own school or group fundraising thing. So, I, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that, that you can you can get involved and, and eat, talk to your parents. You know, they, you may have doctors in the family. They could rally up, you know, medical supplies and, and work to get that. You can contact me. <laughs> Feel free to contact me as I work with three other people in Chicago as the uh, Chicago Community of Concern for Partners in Health. Um, um, I don't know if any, those are the things that kind of come to mind off the top. But get creative about it. Talk to everybody you know, and you don't know who the next person you're going to talk to knows. That's what I found in the past week. I've gotten some incredible feedback and, and support and help and in all different kinds of ways, not, not just monetarily. Um, you know, your old high school principals, and you know, just, just talk to them about what you know now and, and you know, there's so many good organizations, but one thing I would say about Partners in Health is that they have been there a long time, and they, they know how to deal with the culture there, and they do work with the government of what's left of it, but their whole initiative was based on making a, a self-sustaining organization and get, you know, they, they have now over about 6,000 employees worldwide, and under 100 of those are non-national. Non so, you know, people like David Walton, he grew up in Skokie, Illinois, went to a public high school, went to Augustana College, and then learned under, under Paul Farmer at, at Harvard. And, you know, that's, that's a choice he made in his life to, to pursue with helping people in Haiti. I mean, it just kind of, I, I wanted to kind of ask Greg what your attraction to, to Haiti or how you got so involved with it because you know so much about it, Greg. <laughs> Well, I've been studying Haiti for a long time, uh, very interesting in, in the place. And I began studying Haiti when I was in college, uh, second year of college, like I imagine some of you at least are. Um, and took a course in the Caribbean, read about Haiti, and got really interested in it because I thought um, here's a place that is so important and so important to the new world and the modern world that we live in. Uh, and yet it's a story that's seldom told. It's a place that's often um, dismissed or silenced or uh, written about in uh, uh, highly dubious ways, shall we say. Uh, it's overlaid with all kinds of, of tropes and images, um, some of which are being trotted out uh, in the newspapers today, um, things like um, you know, voodoo is devil worship or something like that, which I think uh, if you um, want to know more about how to defend against something like that and want to know more about what voodoo is really about, um, I'm happy to talk more about that um, afterwards as well. Uh, it's something that you need to watch for um, in the media. But So I was interested in Haiti as a college student, and I had just started studying its history and it sort of snowballed from there. Um, one of the things, uh, um, again, just to emphasize something that Anna said, is that if you're looking for something to do and you're thinking, as Larry suggested, just stunned by the staggering proportions of the catastrophe in Haiti, which um, we have yet to fully assess. The figure 200,000 dead is the conservative estimate this week or, or today. 
they haven't even gotten out of Port-au-Prince um, to the dozens of towns and villages in the rural areas that were actually closer to the epicenter. Uh, aerial um, uh, assessments suggest between 20 to 90 percent destruction in most of those towns and cities. So um, it's an it's a, uh, unfolding catastrophe still in terms of the scale and scope. And many of the people on the ground today are calling it um, the worst humanitarian crisis um, of the century, but the decade of ever of the world. Uh, we don't know exactly um, how to characterize it yet, but it doesn't have to be the worst ever to be uh, absolutely terrible, which it is. And so given that staggering scale and scope of the, of the problem, there is this issue of what can we do? And again, as Anne said, uh, money might not be feasible for us, but what I would like to encourage you to do is think of a couple of things. One is, again, as Anne said, be as creative as, and ambitious as you possibly can. If you can't raise money or don't want to raise money or don't know how to raise money, uh, there's all kinds of other things you can do. I know, uh, or I think this is right, that some um, student organizations are collecting dry goods. Is that, there's some people involved with that right now? Yeah. Um, so that's a great thing to do. One thing to keep in mind with that right now is that, uh, again, given the, the extreme problems of the relief uh, and rescue efforts on the ground, the fact that we have only one airport, no port, um, they're trying to land 100 planes in an airport with no aircraft control tower. Uh, you can't send dry goods to Haiti yet, but you can start gathering them now. You can work with people here. Um, St. Paul the Redeemer, a church in Hyde Park, has a long uh, connection to Haiti. They might be able to help you think about how to expand that kind of drive. Because the next wave of this, after the, em the real emergency of medical care, searching for survivors, is going to be homelessness, uh, people are going to need shelters, tents, blankets, shoes, food, water, sanitation, everything you can imagine uh, for a city of two and a half million people, which is now gone. Um, so the dry goods, uh, um, uh, shoes, blankets, tents, that kind of thing can also be something you could think of if, if that's something you're interested in. Uh, that's going to be the next coming weeks and months. That's going to be the next necessity. Beyond that, I would, uh, above all else, urge you to not forget about this as other things come across the news screens. This is going to be, uh, recovery in Haiti is going to be decades, generations, I think. Uh, and um, if we can it's encourage you to get term. committed uh, and interested in Haiti and want to know more about Haiti and paying attention to um, how that reconstruction happens, that is a great thing as well. Personally, I'll tell you my take on it. I think that um, if you think back, well, it's beyond our, all our, our experience or framework, but what I would say is what Haiti needs is something as ambitious in scale and scope as the Marshall Plan after World War II, uh, the Eco European Economic Recovery Plan. Now, obviously, the conditions are completely different. The reasons we might do that are completely different, but I just picked that because of the sheer ambition uh, and the uh, rapid nature of, of rebuilding that happened in Europe. In four years, European countries, um, their GDP was higher than it had been before the war. Now, that's not something we usually think of when we think of intervening in third world countries. Certainly nothing like that has ever been done in Haiti. Um, usually interventions leave Haiti barely um, better, if at, better at all, um, compared to how it was before. Given the complete destruction of the capital city, um, the destruction of government uh, institutions, the destruction of infrastructure, we have to rebuild the country from the ground up. And I keep saying we because I actually think it's a shared political responsibility, not just of the US, but of the international community. And I would say that if we rebuild Haiti to the to the state it was before the earthquake. If we rebuild Haiti as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, when we have this chance to rebuild a country, 
largely from scratch, then in my mind, that's an absolute failure of our imagination. And I would say an indictment of even the promise and possibility of development that uh, is ushered forth by a political system that, that is uh, democratic, transparent, and liberal. So that's my personal take. And if you want to hear more about it, I'm happy to talk more about it after. Um, but I would like to at least encourage you to think long-term about how, you know, how, to, how to keep the US government, the international community, thinking as ambitiously as possible about this. And that can take any form. I mean, you can write letters to newspapers. You can write op-eds. Um, you can even just be aware of Haiti and, and ask uh, what is actually being done there. Can we see concrete results? And if people suggest that um, what Haiti should get is a few hotels on a beach in the north, and that's going to recover the economy, well, it won't, it won't restore an economy to Haiti. Um, and you can, if you know about Haiti, you can respond directly to say, say that's not good enough. You know, that's not actually a, re a, a response to the level of, situ of the situation. Um, there actually is a privately owned, it's owned by a, a cruise ship. There's a privately owned beach in the north of Haiti, uh, which has a cruise ship that docked at it today. Yeah, and there's a news story week. that broke about this, that the people on the ship likely don't know what's going on in Haiti at all. They, likely, they certainly don't know they're in Haiti. The cruise line calls the private beach that they own uh, Paradise Island. Uh, a great irony, um, given where they actually are right now. I, I think I, I read something about, a few people did, did know what, where they were and they said, I'm not getting off, this is ridiculous, but they got on the cruise ship to begin with, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is certainly uh, people's choices, but those are, those are the kinds of things you can then read critically if you know a little bit about Haiti and think about, and think about um, uh, again, I would just encourage you to think as ambitiously as possible beyond what kinds of fundraising uh, if that's what you want to do, that can be done now. What other kinds of things can be done? One of the other things I think that you, as Chicago students and um, the age that you are, um, might also be able to do is just um, as a thought exercise, just imagine if you had um, the ear of political leaders right now and we could, we could think about rebuilding Haiti, regardless of cost, um, we had the political will to do it, what would, what would you do? Um, how would you rebuild a country from the state that it's in? How would you recover from this kind of catastrophe? What kinds of things do you guys think might be necessary steps there? I mean, uh, obviously, you're still students. You're not experts in this. But actually, that gives you a great opportunity to think much, much more critically than the people who actually manage these kinds of things can do, because mm -hmm. they get boxed into particular ways of thinking. They get disciplined and formed, and they have limitations of what's politically feasible. You don't have any of that. You can think as openly and as critically as you want. And I think that that might be something else that you guys can begin to think about. Uh, but maybe we can turn it over to kind of questions yeah. and answers. I'd love to hear what those of you who are gathering um, dry goods or what other kinds of things you might be doing. If you want to share that information with the rest of us as well so everybody knows what's going on, that would be great. Uh, and if there are any questions, I think we're happy to answer them. Yes, sure. How do you see that as an example of short-term, long-term? Right. Well, coincidentally, on Tuesday, I was in Boston with David Walton and um, a man who's donating an incredible amount of his time, resources, and money, um, who was a former owner of a, a, a large New England general contracting company called Shawmut Construction. And um, I literally went to Boston for 
four hours to sit and work on the planning. And we've been kind of replanning this hospital in a, a town called Mirabale, which is at the um, portal into the central plateau area, which is where Partners in Health works. There's 10 hospitals there right now. And it was not their intention a year ago to do another hospital, but there was an incredible need and, and, and they were asked by the Ministry of Health of Haiti to help them in the, the planning of this. And, and of, of course, they became the planning part of that. And, um, but they, do, they have to work with the Ministry of Health because there are certain guidelines that the Ministry of Health has. And they kind of work back and forth to update their requirements, their, their standards. And so it's a, very, it's a very cooperative kind of way of working in, in the country where, where there aren't huge amounts of standards and, and, or they may be antiquated, which is the case in a lot of the stuff with the Ministry of Health. So um, we actually started my firm, small architecture firm of five people in Chicago. Um, it was something that, that I said I was interested in and Paul, who's an incredibly funny and open person, as you can see, said, come on down to Haiti and build, he literally said, come on down to Haiti and build some shit, Anne. <laughs> and I said, all right. You know, and the standards, totally different there, but we got to a point where um, there was one piece of property that was designated for the hospital. It turned out that once we started planning it, it really wasn't, wasn't sufficient in terms of size for what they wanted to do. So right down the street, they, they, they found another piece of property, which is now 10 acres as opposed to the one and a half acres that we started with. And um, it will include an outpatient clinic, um, a community health service clinic, which will be mostly serving people um, who come with malnutrition issues. Um, and there'll be, there'll be a food depot where um, they actually hand out nutrition. It's, a, it's a, like a peanut butter with extra nutrients in it. Um, what they're um, developing is called Nuri Mamba. Um, a women's health clinic with uh, full labor and delivery rooms and post, um, postpartum ward and a lying in center where women, women can't get to a hospital in time a lot, of, a lot of the times to have their baby. So they come ahead of time. They can stay for a week, three, four, five weeks if they have complications and stay in this lying in center, um, a surgery clinic, um, a TB isolation ward, and then a full women's, uh, men's, and children's ward, an ICU, and There'll be a morgue and a, and a I mean, it's a, it's a whole complex now, which is not what it started out to be, but they, you know, as, as we developed and, and talked and, and continued to design, there was this need for all of this. So, you know, people ask me, have you ever designed a hospital before? No, a hospital, University of Chicago Hospital is a totally different deal. But now, you know, now, now we have a new standard and we've gotten to the point where the hospital is, almost completely planned, but we haven't engineered it yet, which is a good thing <laughs> because we're going to have to think about it from the whole aspect of seismic engineering now, which I, I can guarantee you there's not one building in Haiti that was thought of that way. I heard an interview on NPR the other morning with um, a structural engineer who was studying up and uh, getting his PhD up in New York somewhere, and he said um, that when he was in engineering school in Haiti, 
he was taught that the only building that would remain standing, because they talk about these things in engineering school, um, was the uh, pol uh, presidential palace. Okay, that wasn't so true. <laughs> um, Just to add on that, in, in Port-au-Prince especially, uh, it's not even a lack of, of enforcement of housing or building codes, but a lack of code for housing mm -hmm. at all anymore in Port-au-Prince, plus most of the houses are actually hand-built by the people who live in them. Right. Um, I think there actually is some semblance of a building code, but there's absolutely no there enforcement be, there, right No now. one would know it. Right. In, in the and and, it, and uh, uh, again, probably outdated. So this is something, you know, I, I mean, we're volunteering our, our design services. I'm, I'm not taking or asking for any money from anybody. I haven't, I haven't solicited any money even from a donor to say, can you pay for my services? This is what we chose to do. Um, and the day after the earthquake, we sat in the office and went, I don't know, you know, obviously it's a, it's a little bit off, but I think there's a greater need for this now. And I, I would also venture to guess that there probably are no other hospitals in the plan, planning stage for Haiti right now. So while this is, and, and David Walton, who's been instrumental in, in the planning phase with, with our firm, has said, you know, we want this to be a better standard, the best standard that they have in Haiti so far. And so all of that stuff that, you know, uh, inventory of, of program that I just told you, it, it, it is better. I saw, I went there a year ago for four days and saw what was available. And it's, it's not enough, you know, and, and so, you know, they said, we, we want it better. This is an opportunity to make a new standard for the people of Haiti. And now, because it is not in Port-au-Prince, I think it's going to have to go sooner. It's only 37 miles to the north of Port-au-Prince, and it's going to be something that's hugely needed right now. I mean, it was hugely needed before, but now it's a thousandfold needed, and, and the sooner we can get this moving on after we, you know, do the uh, crisis management, it, the better. And, and obviously we'll, we'll enlist the, the correct people. And, and I don't know, I mean, I think probably the next thing I'll be doing is working on a building code. Right. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a, a next thing. And actually, one of the things I um, am a big fan of Partners in Health as well. And, and many of you have, have no doubt heard of Doctors Without Borders. Um, I don't know if you know that there's um, you know, blank without borders, just about as many things as you can imagine. There's Except for architects without borders. Really? No architects okay. without borders. So that's a, that's a good uh, starting point. But there's, you know, there's clowns without borders, engineers without borders. And the without borders is an interesting kind of concept that can then be exported to all different kinds of, of domains and professions. But one of the things that's at the core of it, and this is certainly the, the origin point of, of doctors without borders, is that they're at root a humanitarian um, form of intervention. They go into a crisis, they don't care about the border, which means they don't care about the government asking them to come in. They go in, they help people stay alive, and then they leave. And it's an absolutely crucial service, especially in times of crisis. But it doesn't leave behind anything. Right? Now, that's, this is part of the refu uh, relief and rescue phase. Dr. Boris is doing a great job. Uh, they're having trouble landing their airplane today. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's had to circle and land three times before we can get to, to Haiti. But, um, but what I wonder is whether we can take, without even having to ask Partners on Health as an institution to do this, just take the idea of partnership out of that and say, can this be a model for how to think about it? Can there be partners for a building code, partners for architecture, partners for engineering? The partners word partners for, in health uses right. as accompaniment, and they, 
you know, talked about the people, the community health workers, and you can take that to every level up from there, like, like Greg is talking about, partners in, in building, partners in planning, partners in medical services, you know, and it, it's just, it's an endless, and the partnership, I think, is the key word, you know, we, we can go in there and do what we need to do now and in the next six months and then go away and forget about it. it it's not going to make a difference. It's an hour plane ride from Miami to get to Port-au-Prince. It, it, it's, it's really unacceptable that it's been like this for this long, and I don't think very many people in this country really paid attention to it. I, I mean, I know that. <laughs> you can take a, a boat from Florida to Haiti. Um, mm -hmm. Many Haitians migrate Do. by boat. Yeah. But uh, I think that's the thing that, you know, I go back to something I said at the start, that with this idea of 10,000 or more NGOs in Haiti. It's the thing that's always been missing from that model has been um, the development projects contributing to a lasting, durable kind of uh, uh, infrastructure and institutional capacity. The NGOs don't leave much behind when they go.